0: Galatians chapter 2. Most of you have probably heard of Edward Snowden. He worked for the CIA as a computer specialist. And then he illegally copied and leaked classified information from the National Security Agency in 2013. And he leaked some key strategy surveillance programs that were crucial to United States intelligence. And so the Department of Justice charged him with two counts of violating the Espionage Act of 1917, and for theft of government property. Immediately, he fled the country to go to Russia. If you remember the story, his passport was revoked. As a matter of fact, I think our team, when they went to Russia, were in the airport the same time Snowden was in the airport. He had to stay there for a month until they figured things out. But then the Russian government gave him asylum until the year 2020. And to this day, he lives in an undisclosed location in Russia. And Edward Snowden is a modern tale of someone who made a major compromise. Major compromise. Betrayed his country, compromised information, compromised intelligence, put many lives at risk by compromising not only his integrity, but also compromising the United States. Now, you can probably think of other famous people who made major compromises that affected maybe their own personal integrity or the integrity of an organization. And so when someone compromises, it can possibly bring danger, it can bring chaos, it can bring destruction, it can bring confusion. I wonder if you've ever looked up to somebody, respected somebody. Maybe it was somebody at work. Maybe it was somebody you really looked up to. And you looked at that person and said, man, that person's got it together. I respect their, their values. I respect their stance. And then all of a sudden, they did something to compromise their morals. And it threw you for a loop. You're like, what, what in the world's going on here? And you were, you were frustrated. You felt a little confused. You lost all respect for them because they compromised. Just recently in Pennsylvania, a Republican congressman made a major compromise. His name is Tim Murphy. He is a pro-life candidate, but has had to choose not to run again because he got his mistress pregnant and forced her to have an abortion. And so it doesn't look good when you're a pro-life candidate. So on the outside, he looked really good, but on the inside, he made some major compromises. So let me just ask you a question. What happens when somebody makes a major compromise? It brings confusion. It brings frustration. It brings chaos. It it brings a lot of different feelings. It can actually bring destruction to a family, it can bring destruction to an organization. But let me ask the question more pointedly What happens when somebody compromises on the truth of the gospel? on the truth of the gospel. It does the same thing. It brings confusion. It brings chaos. It brings frustration. And it can destroy a church. Now, Paul was no stranger to controversy. Paul was a man who stood his ground. Paul was a man who stood for integrity. He never once compromised on the truth of the gospel. And as we've been looking through the book of Galatians, we've seen there's been this underlying problem in the church. We can identify these people as Judaizers, troublemakers. They were trying to add circumcision onto the gospel, onto salvation. And in chapter 1 verse 7 if you go back and you remember, he says that there are those who are trying to distort the gospel of Christ, trying to trouble the church. They were undermining Paul's authority. They were coming along and saying, Paul's not teaching the true gospel. Don't listen to Paul. Paul was not one of the original apostles. Paul's not Peter. Paul's not from Jerusalem. Paul came along later. His gospel is subpar. Don't listen to him. We've got the true gospel. And it was actually a false gospel. And here's the problem. If this group continued to take a foothold in the church, it would destroy that church that young church that Paul had just planted probably a year earlier. And so as we look at the scriptures this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and Paul is going to continue to give somewhat of an autobiography. He's going to talk about his ministry, but this is a very important issue in the life of the early church because the, the truth of the gospel is on the line here. In what Paul does. So let's pick up in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles Might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what's the big idea of this passage of Scripture? What's the central truth? What's, what's Paul communicating to us? It's simply this. We must never compromise the truth of the unchanging gospel. This whole passage of Scripture is about compromise. If Paul would have compromised. If Paul would have compromised on the gospel, it would have been devastating. And the church may have never been the same today. So what I want us to do is I want us to see this section unfold in three different scenes. Three different vignettes. Vignettes. This is all about a visit to Jerusalem, but let's just look at it from scene one. Scene one, the visit to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Remember after chapter one, when Paul becomes a Christian, when Paul's converted, he he doesn't immediately go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go consult with the other apostles. He doesn't go compare notes. If you remember, he goes for three years into the desert of Arabia, and he does ministry. And then so here Paul says it's 14 years later. He's been doing ministry for 14 years. 14 years later, he decides to go to Jerusalem. Now, why does he go to Jerusalem? Is he officially summoned? Does Peter, James, and John summon Paul and say, You need to show up? You need to come. You need to bring your credentials. You, we're checking up on you. We are officially summoning you to a church convocation. Paul, you must come. Is that why Paul goes? No, that's not why Paul goes. Actually, what Paul says is, I went because of a revelation. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Now, we don't exactly know what this was. Did Paul have a dream? Did Paul have a vision? Did God say to him directly, go to Jerusalem? We really don't know, but we have a clue in the book of Acts that may help us understand why Paul and Barnabas and Titus went to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27-30, through 30, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, that's where Paul was in Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. A lot of scholars believe that maybe this prophecy Agabus had about this famine prompted Paul and Barnabas and Titus to go to Jerusalem for Relief to give them money to help the struggling church in Jerusalem. We really don't know. The only thing we do know is Paul's not officially summoned. Paul goes because he felt compelled to go. It wasn't like these so the big dogs. Peter, the leader of the, the, the apostles, John, the second leader of the apostles, and then James, who was jesus's half-brother. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. These were the three top dogs, the pillars. It wasn't because the three top dogs says, Paul, you need to come up here because we've got to talk to you. No, Paul went on his own, and it says that he met privately with them. He didn't make a big public ordeal about it. It wasn't a church convocation. He didn't have a big group there. He said he met with them privately. But what did he do? He said in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. He set before them the gospel. That means he clearly told them. He didn't hide anything. Paul just says, listen, I'm going to tell you guys clearly what I've been preaching for the past 14, 15 years. What I've been preaching among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. I'd gone into these unreached people groups. I'd planted churches. i have been preaching the gospel. We've been seeing Gentiles come to faith in Christ in mass numbers. The church is exploding all across the Gentile world. I'm telling you, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm going to set before you plainly what's been going on. But Paul says something very interesting there at the end of verse 2. He says he does this in order to make sure I was not running Or had not run in vain. Now, what does it mean that Paul says, I I hope I'm not running in vain? Does this mean somehow Paul was afraid that if he went to Jerusalem, that somehow after all these years he was preaching the wrong gospel? I don't think that's what Paul thought. You don't get any sense from any of Paul's writings that he was unsure about what he was preaching. As a matter of fact, remember, he says, I received this from the Lord. This was a direct revelation from the Lord. I don't think Paul was thinking, man, if I get up there and compare notes, everything I've done for the past 14 years is going to be for naught because I've been preaching the wrong thing. No, I think what Paul's saying is, listen, if I don't go silence these false Judaizers, these false brothers, if I don't deal with this, the unity of the church is at stake. And it's going to prevent me from doing further ministry in both Jewish and Gentile areas. So we've got to deal with this. I've got to deal with this issue of these false teachings that are influencing and causing disturbances in the church. Because I have a young church to think about. Paul is a pastor that planted the church of Galatia. And Paul is concerned that these young, impressionable Christians that are, that are hearing confusing things from Jerusalem, the mothership, it's causing major confusion. I've, we've got to nip this in the bud. So I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to take two people with me. I'm going to take Barnabas, which they knew who Barnabas was. Barnabas was a good Jew. He was well-known. But Paul takes somebody else. Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile saved by grace. So here's the second thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. The test case of Titus. Titus is a test case. Paul is doing something a little risky here. In a sense, he's bringing Titus right into the lion's den of legalism. He's bringing a quote-unquote unclean, uncircumcised Gentile right into the holy city of of Jerusalem and saying, look guys, I've got a test case for you right here of someone who's been saved by grace without circumcision. Look at what he says there. Verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus is an example of a person that got saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone without circumcision. Now why is circumcision such a big deal? Why were these Judaizers, why were those in Jerusalem so bent out of shape, so hung up on circumcision? Well, number one, you can understand, it goes all the way back to Abraham. It was God's covenant to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. It was an outward sign, cutting off the foreskin to to separate the Israelites from all the other pagan nations around them. It was a big deal. But in recent history, it was a bigger deal. See, about 200 years before Paul and his time, there was a pagan king, a pagan ruler... His name was Antiochus IV. He ransacked Jerusalem. He came in and set up his own pagan temple in Jerusalem. And here's what what he did. He outlawed circumcision. Basically said, any boy that's found circumcised will immediately be put to death, and his mother will be put to death. So this king put to death a lot of babies who had been circumcised. Now, that lasted for a few years in Jerusalem's history. Okay, now, in Paul's day, 200 years later, they're under Roman rule. They're no longer, this is not like, you know, King David reigning from Jerusalem. They are under Roman rule. They really don't have a lot of rights. So there's one thing they still have left in their culture that gives them some sense of identity, some sense of stability, some sense of national pride, and that's circumcision. That's something that wasn't taken away from them. So they had elevated circumcision to the the highest point of saying, this is the be-all, end-all of what it means to be one of God's children. If you are not circumcised, you aren't the real deal. You haven't really been saved. Now, these false teachers... We're taking something good. Okay? Is, is there anything good or bad about circumcision? Who cares? Okay? It's, it's a right. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a custom. There's nothing necessarily good about it. There's nothing necessarily bad about it. It's just something the Jews did. But they had elevated that to a position of making it equal to your personal salvation. And that's a huge issue. As a matter of fact... It was causing major division, major problems, major frustrations in the church. And notice what he says there in verse 4. False brothers. The word there is pseudo-brothers. Sham Christians. And notice the requirement that they were adding was circumcision. Acts 15.1 tells us about these men. Acts 15.1 Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Here's what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Pretty point blank there, right? You can't be saved. You can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you are circumcised. So yes, it's grace. Yes, it's faith in Jesus. But let's add circumcision as a requirement onto that. And Paul says, not even Titus. I'm not going to budge for an inch and have Titus be circumcised. And Paul uses espionage language, political espionage language, to describe these guys. Notice what he says in verse 4. Yet because of brothers, false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. They slipped in unaware." bringing this destructive heresy. Peter, in Peter's uh, second letter, 2 Peter 2.1, uses the same terminology. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. They're secretly bringing in this false teaching. They infiltrated like a spy They slipped in behind enemy lines to spy out the freedom. Jude chapter 4, I mean Jude 4 says this. There's no chapter in Jude, Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like a poisonous snake that sneaks into a garden to cause problems. Now here's the thing with false teachers, and I'm speaking from experience because I've been around this thing long enough. Most false teachers do not walk into a church with a name tag saying, hello, I'm a false teacher, will you follow me? They don't do that. Let me tell you how false teachers work. They come in secretly. They try to blend in at first. They try to make friends, and here's what they do they spy, they observe, and they look to see who's the most vulnerable, who's the most gullible, who can I influence? And then they start to speak up in a Sunday school class or in a growth group. And then people start, oh, they, they they seem pretty intelligent. They seem pretty biblically literate. And they start to get a hearing, they start to get a following. And then, behind the scenes, they might invite you over to their home and say something like this, what do you think of Pastor Sean's teaching? What do you think about the spiritual maturity of, of Emmanuel? What do, you, what do you think about the elders? Are they worthy to be followed? What do you think about the spiritual temperature of Emmanuel? Innocent questions, Right but they're meant to plant seeds of doubt into your mind about your own church. And so they secretly bring these things in because they've spied out the situation. They know who's vulnerable. They know who's gullible. They know who's impressionable. They know who are spiritually mature, and they, they pounce like a wolf. This happened at my former church. I think I've told you the story before in Colorado Springs. A former pastor from Denver and his wife moved to, to town, and they began attending our church. And they secretly wanted to overthrow the, the leadership. And so they did just exactly that. They came in, they, they, they made friends, they were unassuming, and then they started having home Bible studies without anybody knowing it. And they basically plotted to overtake the pastor's leadership and change the entire direction of the church, months behind the scenes. Came time for a worship service. The woman, the wife of the the pastor, the the, the former pastor, she stood up in a worship service and first person prophesied began prophesying against the pastor and against the church and against the leadership, and it caused major confusion. It caused major chaos. Now, needless to say, our pastor stood up to that, and they didn't have a foothold, and they ended up leaving the church, but it caused for a season... It caused confusion, chaos, and suspicion because these people secretly came in. And so what's at stake here for Paul is not just some weird concept like circumcision. What's at stake for Paul is the very absolute truth of the unchanging gospel. Here's the fundamental question. Is a person saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, period? Or is there something else you've got to add on to it? Whether it's circumcision or anything. Because notice what Paul says it does. Notice what Paul says it does there in verse 4. They've slipped in. These false brothers have secretly slipped in. They've spied out the freedom. You see it there? The freedom we have that they might bring us back into slavery. You see, when you add anything on top of Jesus Christ alone, it does not bring freedom. It brings slavery. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone brings you freedom because you know you have peace with God. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You are saved by grace alone. It brings freedom. But when you start adding other requirements on top of the gospel, Paul says it's going to bring you into slavery. It's going to bring you into bondage. You're not going to have peace with God. Paul says... In Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you have peace with God? How do you have how do you know your sins are forgiven? By faith, not anything else. By faith alone. We'll get to this in a few months, but in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What these men had done is they'd come into this young church, impressionable young believers, maybe spiritually mature, And they were putting them back into a yoke of slavery, back into the bondage of works or something outward that they had to do, added on top of just grace alone through Christ alone in the gospel. And Paul says that's bondage. That is bondage. And Paul's not going to deal with it. Paul's not going to put up with it. Notice he says there in verse 5, to them, these false teachers, that they were, they were, they were teaching this false doctrine about circumcision, we did not yield in submission to them even for one moment. Basically, I can picture Paul saying this You're not going to circumcise Titus over my dead body. You're not, you're not touching him. We're not going to yield to your false teaching. Because notice what Paul says. The reason we didn't yield, the reason we didn't have Titus circumcised, the reason it's such a big deal is, look at the end of verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, might be preserved for you, kept for you, maintained in you. This is about the truth of the gospel. If I would have compromised on Titus being circumcised, I would have compromised on the truth of the gospel. Because I have here a living, breathing test case in Titus who is a person who's been saved by grace Through Christ alone, no circumcision. And if I tell him he has to be circumcised, then I've got to tell thousands of other Gentile Christians who've been saved the past 14 years that they've got to be circumcised, and that's going to cause bondage. That's going to cause confusion. I will not let Titus be circumcised because it's the truth of the gospel. He's not a second-class citizen. That's what they were saying. He's not a true Christian Yes, he may have believed in Jesus. May he, yes, he may have been saved by grace, but he's not fully a Christian because he's not taken the second step of circumcision. Let me just say this. The gospel unites us all at the base of the cross as equally sinners. There are no second-class Christians. We are all sinners saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And let me issue a warning here this morning. There is a danger. There is a danger for Christians to try to add something onto the gospel, whether consciously or not. I've seen this play out time and time again in the past 25, 30 years of ministry. The gospel is Jesus plus baptism, or you're really not saved. Now, is baptism vitally important? Yes, yes. Is it the first act of obedience? Yes. If you've not been baptized by being dunked under the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you need to come talk to me because you've not been scripturally baptized. We need to talk about baptism. It's the first act of obedience. But let me just be very clear. Baptism doesn't save you. It's called baptismal regeneration. There are some churches that believe in baptismal regeneration, that baptism saves you. Let me tell you a story of a friend of mine in college who believed this. I asked him, I was playing devil's advocate one day, and I asked him, okay, let's, let's play this out. You believe that salvation saves you. Yes. Baptism saves me. I have to be baptized in order to be saved. I said, okay, let's, let me ask you a question. Sunday morning, the gospel's preached. A guy comes to the front and says, I want to trust in Jesus. I repent of my sins. I've, I've, I've given my life to Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. But we've got a problem. There's a problem with the baptistry. There's no water this morning. Oh man, we got to wait till tonight. So we got to come back tonight. Sunday night service, we'll have a baptismal service on Sunday night. He'll come back and we'll baptize baptize him on Sunday night. So I asked my friend a question: What happens if he walks out of this service and gets hit by a car and dies? Does he go to heaven or hell? And to my shock, my friend said he goes to hell because he hadn't been baptized and I said I'm sorry you believe that the gospel plus 10% giving you're not really saved unless you're generous Jesus plus speaking in tongues or some type of charismatic experience to show that you're you're really saved there are some people that believe you're not really saved unless you actually speak in tongues you're not fully, really saved. You're a second-class citizen. When I was in high school, this will date me, I went to a Carmen concert. Some of you still remember Carmen? Okay, so I went to a, some of you, I went to a Carmen concert in high school. And it was time for the altar call, and um, it was time to come down front, and, and the whole altar call was come down to be saved so that you can receive the gift of tongues. That was the way it was spoken. Come down to the front to get saved to get the gift of tongues. And obviously I knew I was saved, And so I just stood in my seat. Well, these ladies sitting next to me, they they kept looking at me and my brother. And so she came up to me during the the altar call. She says, it's obvious that you're not saved because you don't have the gift of speaking in tongues. You need to go down right to the front and get saved, young man, because you're not fully saved. And I was deeply offended as a 17-year-old. And I might have said some choice words to that lady, but I don't think I did. I think in my head I did. But I got up and left because I knew in my heart no, I'm, I'm saved. I don't need that extra experience to, to, to get me saved. I've heard other people say this. Now, this may be offensive to you. You're not really saved if you're a Democrat. I've heard it the other way, too. You're not really saved if you're a Republican. It doesn't matter which political party it is, but some people will say, man, if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're an Independent or you're a Green Party, whatever part political party, if you're not that, you must really not be saved. So we've relegated salvation to politics. I've heard people say this. You're not really saved unless you fill in the blank." Your choice of schooling. You're not really saved unless you homeschool. Only homeschoolers are saved. You're not saved unless you private school. You're not saved unless you put your kids in public school because you want them to be a witness. Let me just say this. Your choice of schooling is your choice of schooling. It's a family choice. You make whatever choice you feel led to make. But when you elevate educational choices to the gospel, you've become a Judaizer. You've added something onto the gospel. I've seen parenting techniques. Back in the 80s, it was Bill Gothard. If you don't do Bill Gothard, you're not truly saved. In the 90s, it was, you know, raising kids God's way with Gary Ezzo. And Gary Ezzo caused some major problems at John MacArthur's church and was disciplined. And third, and you know, 2000, not 2000, I think like 700 people left the church because of his problems. You see, you can add all these things to the gospel. You're not really preaching the gospel if you don't have an old fashioned come to the front altar call where people raise their hand and, and repeat after me prayer type thing. I've had people accuse me of that. You know, back when I was growing up, that's the terminology we used. When I was growing up, you know, when you asked somebody about their salvation, you wouldn't ask somebody, when did you get saved? When were you converted? When did you trust Christ for salvation? We didn't use terms like that. You know what wording we used? When did you go forward? Okay, there's a whole generation of people today who have no idea what you're saying. If I said if you went up to somebody and say when did you go forward? Uh, like this morning when I walked out to my car, <laughs> I didn't go backwards. I went forward. Those of us that grew up in the South under that type of system, we knew what going forward meant. It means you go down to the altar, and so you add that on top of salvation. You're not really saved unless you use the King James Version of the Bible, or the NIV, or the ESV. I'm picking on everybody today, okay? So here's the problem. You may not come out right and consciously say this, but in your heart of hearts, you can have a prejudice. Where you can think in your heart of hearts, if that other person is not up to what I think they need to be up to on a secondary issue they either, number one, aren't fully saved, or number two, they must not be very spiritual. And you will begin to look down upon them on a secondary issue like baptism, like homeschooling, like public schooling, like politics, all these different things. If they don't believe the same way as you, you may actually begin to look down upon them and what you've done in your heart is you become a Judaizer. The issue's not circumcision for you, but it's anything else that you've added on top of the gospel. One of my favorite hymns is the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. But my hope is built on nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See the difference there? It's built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, but it's not built on anything more. When you start to add things on top of Jesus' blood and righteousness as a requirement for salvation, You've done exactly what Paul is addressing here with the Judaizers. So Titus was the test case. All right, let's look at scene three. The unity of the unchanging gospel in verses six through 10. Now, Paul calls these men pillars. He's not, he's not being disrespectful. Those guys that seem to be influential, Paul's not being disrespectful. What Paul's doing is saying, listen, Judaizers who are listening to me, Peter, James, and John are just men. You've elevated them to this superposition. They are just men. Yes, they're pillars of the church. Yes, it's Peter. Yes, it's John. Yes, it's James, the Lord's brother. But do you know what? They added nothing to me. Look at the end of verse 6. From those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Amen. Amen. They did not add anything to what Paul was teaching. They didn't say to Paul, hey, Paul, let me pull you aside here for a minute. Peter, James, and John, the pillars. We appreciate what you've been doing in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth, all this this work you've done among the Gentiles, and and you've done a pretty good job. You've you've preached salvation by grace. You've preached salvation through faith in Jesus. We really appreciate that. But you know what, Paul? There's just one thing that you kind of don't have right. You didn't add circumcision onto that. Is that what they say to Paul? No, Paul says, when I explained to them what I'd been preaching, they added nothing to me. In other words, they confirmed what I'd been preaching all along, that circumcision was not a requirement. And in verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship. So this was, this was an outward symbol of two things. This outward right hand of fellowship was to do two things. Number one, it was to outwardly show that Peter, James, and John, and Paul were all on the same page and that the Judaizers needed to stop what they were doing because they're all on the same page. But number two, it also needed to show this fledgling Galatian church that may have been confused that the mothership Jerusalem and Paul were on the same page. So this right hand of fellowship did two things. It told the Judaizers, we're on the same page. Because what did the Judaizers expect? They wanted Paul to be rebuked. They were expecting Peter, James, and John to rebuke Paul, and that's not what happened. They had the right hand of fellowship. So it silenced the Judaizers, but it also brought a a comforting reassurance to this fledgling church in Galatia that there's no confusion on the gospel. Now, we may be the Gentiles uncircumcised, and they may be the Jews circumcised, and and Peter had a mission to the the Jews, and Paul had a uh, a mission to the Gentiles. Two different missions, but the same message. The same message. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now you may be thinking, this is some ancient controversy between the early apostles over circumcision. What does this have to do with me? I could care less. It's, a, it's an interesting story of history. Well, let me suggest to you two very important issues that I think apply to us this morning. Here's number one. There is no ambiguity as to what the unchanging gospel is. There's no ambiguity. Okay, if you leave this place and you do not realize that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone without anything else added onto it, you haven't heard a word I've said. There is no ambiguity. Remember when Paul was in jail in the Philippian jailer Got freaked out because the angel came and opened the doors. In Acts chapter 16, 30 through 31. Then he brought them out and said, this is the Philippian jailer, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question, right? When you love somebody ask you that question, what do I need to do to be saved? Listen to Paul's answer, verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice what Paul does not say. Oh, Philippian jailer, believe and be baptized, then you will be saved. Believe and then begin speaking in tongues, and then you will be saved. Believe and then start voting whatever political party it is in Rome, and then you'll be saved. Believe and then put your kids in public school, and then you will be saved. Believe and start using the King James Version of the Bible, then you will be saved. Is that what Paul says to the Philippian jailer? No, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Basic question. How am I saved? You believe. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, number one, there should be no ambiguity as to what the gospel is. No ambiguity. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But here's the second thing. The true gospel must not only be preached, but diligently guarded and defended. It needs to be guarded and defended. And you may ask, why do we need to guard it? Why do we need to defend it? Why do do we not need to compromise on it? Here's Here's the answer to that, because there's always a temptation to want to buckle on the gospel. There's always a temptation to want to add something or subtract something to the gospel. So we've got to defend it. We've got to guard it. Because what's going to happen if we don't defend it and we don't guard it? What's Paul say it's going to happen? It's going to put us back into bondage. It's going to put us back into bondage. Martin Luther said this, We can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else. But we will not let ourselves compromise on the gospel, our faith, and Jesus Christ. And that is that. Think of what would have happened if Paul would have compromised. Paul would have had Titus circumcised. You may think that's a minor thing. What do you think would have happened? If Paul would have compromised, three things would have happened. The false teachers would have won the day. Haha, we won. Number two, those young believers in Galatian would have been confused, marginalized, and treated as second class citizens. And number three, the church would have been divided. So the same thing happens today. If we compromise on the gospel, False teaching wins the day. Young, impressionable believers are confused, and the church is destroyed. It's a very important issue. You know, we can have a lot of opinions on secondary issues. I've been picking on a lot of stuff today. You may have an opinion on speaking in tongues. You may have an opinion on on the mode of baptism. You may have an opinion on end times. You may have an opinion on predestination. You may have an opinion on all different secondary matters, maybe even tertiary or or third-degree matters. And we can debate and we can talk and we can agree to disagree, but there is one thing we've got to be dogmatic on that you cannot budge on, and that is the gospel. You can't budge on the gospel. Throughout church history, there have been dark periods where the church has abandoned and compromised the truth of the gospel. There's a scary passage of scripture in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus calls the church a lampstand. A lampstand. What's a lampstand do? A lampstand puts off light. A lampstand is a city on a hill that shines out light. A church exists to shine the light of the world. Jesus, it's a lampstand, it's a metaphor. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus, notice what he says to Ephesus. Revelation 2, 4-5. through 5. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Sadly. There are many churches in America who may have a sign outside their church that says so-and-so church. They may gather on a Sunday morning. They may even sing songs and open their Bible, but they are not a church. Christ has removed the lampstand, and they may not even know it because they've abandoned the gospel. They're a happy group of people meeting, and they may call themselves a church, but in Christ's eyes, he's removed their lampstand. D.A. Carson probably one of the greatest minds of our, of our modern-day New Testament scholar. He gives a lot of insight into this. He says that there's always a danger in losing the gospel, but it doesn't happen automatically. There's a gradual loss. He says sometimes it takes four generations to lose the gospel. He says stage one is the gospel's accepted, the gospel's proclaimed, the gospel's embraced. But then he said stage two, the gospel becomes assumed. You just assume it. You don't talk about it. You assume it. You assume everybody knows what it is, and so you never talk about it because you assume everybody knows what it is. And then number three, once you, stop, when you when you assume it, it moves to you confuse it. And then when you confuse it, number four, you abandon it. The first generation preached it, loved it, talked about it, proclaimed it, guarded it. The second generation assumed it. The third generation confused it. The fourth generation abandoned it. As a church, as individuals, we need to always be at stage one. We always need to be at stage one where we are preaching it, we're discussing it, we're talking about it, we're defending it, we're living it, we're, we're, we're cherishing it, we're defending the gospel, and we never want to get to where we just assume it. Because when you assume it, you confuse it, and when you confuse it, you lose it. So I have two simple questions for you today. First question is this. Do you know the gospel? I mean, do you have the truth of the gospel embedded deep into your heart? Do you know it? Have you experienced it personally? Do you know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? And there's nothing you can add to it. Not your good works, not baptism, not any of the things that you can think of, circumcision, whatever. It is totally just a a faith in Christ alone. Do you look down upon others who may not have the same quote-unquote theological views you have on secondary issues and you question their salvation? Because they don't do such and such, they must not truly be saved. In your heart, you become suspicious or prejudiced. That's the first question. Second question is this. Are you willing to defend it? Are you willing not to compromise on it? Are you willing to guard it? You see that's my job as your pastor. You you may think, "Man, he talks about the gospel all the time." He talks about Jesus' death all the time. He talks about grace alone all the time. You know why I talk about it all the time? It's my job to talk about it all the time, but I'm afraid if I don't talk about it all the time, it's going to get assumed. And I never want the gospel to be assumed. Because you're just that close to it being confused and that close to being it lost. So we will defend it, we will preach it, we will discuss it, we will we will have it embedded deep into our souls. But you've got to come alongside and be willing to embrace it and and cha- and champion it and defend it as well. So will you make a commitment, like Paul did, to never compromise on the truth? of the unchanging gospel. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. May we be a people that hold fast to the gospel, never compromise the gospel. Never add anything to the gospel. Guard our hearts from pride. Guard our hearts from suspicion and prejudice. And help us to be so overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness that you would save us by grace through faith in Christ. Lord, if there's anybody in this room this morning that has never experienced the freedom that comes through Jesus. Would today be the day the chains come off? Lord, there may be some in this room that are living in bondage. They're in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to religion. They're in bondage to works. They're in bondage to all different things, Lord, that that are keeping them in the shackles of sin and self, self self-preservation and self-sufficiency. Would they turn from that and turn towards you, Jesus, in faith and find freedom, find release, find forgiveness, find hope? Lord, I'm afraid for many of us, it's like we live, we live as if we're still in slavery. Although the chains are gone, we, we would rather walk back into the prison cell and just kind of hang out there as opposed to living in the freedom that you've given us. Lord, help us to live in the freedom of the gospel. Help us to proclaim the gospel. Help us to never compromise on the truth of the gospel. And may we do all this for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.